we'll do a contemplation now. A contemplation is an assistance and a um, co-joint with meditation, but it's not the same thing. It's important to know the difference. I will talk about the pathway of meditation in more detail at another time. I want to talk about the pathway of contemplation at this moment to give you an idea what it entails. I'm sure you've all done it, contemplation, and you've all used it. Particularly, we use it at times when we're unsure what to do about ourselves, when there are times of stress or um, decisions, we contemplate. The more meditative our mind is, the easier it is to contemplate. Contemplation must not be confused with discursive thinking. Discursive thinking is trying to have an idea and then logically conclude what the result of that idea is and then Again, another result and another result. In effect, it usually goes around in circles and doesn't work out. It's called problem solving. It doesn't work. But contemplation does work. Contemplation is a different way of using one's mind. It's used in this way. We take a... Um, universal truth, which we will be using in a moment, and see how it relates to ourselves. We are the microcosm in the macrocosm, and whatever we know about the microcosm, that is what we know about the macrocosm, and nothing more and nothing else. So as we take a universal truth, which may be something that we are personally actually worried about or fearful about or not, and then see how it affects us and what kind of reaction we have to it. We get to know ourselves in a totally different way. Because when we look at our own personal affairs, they are far too limited and limiting they are only worthwhile to see in the context of universality and totality. And when we see them as such, they're no longer so overpowering, stressful, and no longer give us the idea that we are particularly prone to problems or difficulties. We can see it in a context of a whole. And as we do that, we lose a little bit of our limitation that is completely centered on our ego, on this one person. When we use this one person to go out into the distance where we can encompass humanity and then universe, we can see ourselves in a much better perspective. We still deal with ourselves 
but the perspective changes. So contemplation goes from the universal to the individual. It can go the other way around. We can go from the individual to the universal. Doesn't matter. But they've got to encompass both of it. And our perspective changes and our understanding becomes much wider. It becomes less limiting and less stressful and worrisome because we can see a much larger picture. When we do that, when we see a much larger picture, it all falls into place much more easily. It's like a big jigsaw puzzle. When we only see ourselves, we only see one of the pieces. We don't know where it fits. Does it really fit here or does it fit over there? Should I try another corner? But when we see the whole, we know where the pieces fit. Contemplation is extremely important in daily life and also has its place, a very important place, as a support system for meditation. Because it helps us to gain some insight. And insight is the goal of meditation. Everything else that we use are the means. The means for a certain end. The means have to be fairly correct, but the end is what is most important. Some of the means that we can use are more conducive to some people and others to other people. So we have different means. The Buddha himself taught 40 different methods of meditation. We're not going to discuss all 40. It's much too confusing. But we will have a few so that we can choose which one is most conducive for us to gain a state of mind which is removed from the discursive thinking, which is usually circular, and also removed from the personal worries and fears and goes into an ultimate understanding. We're going to do a contemplation which the Buddha recommended every person should do every day. There are five subjects they are called the five daily recollections. The first four are no difficulty in the language. The fifth one concerns karma. And since karma has now become part of the English language, I don't think anyone has any problem with that word either. It is actually, the word karma is Sanskrit. In Pali it's kamma. But since karma has entered into our language. That's the way I'll use it. What we're going to do, we're going to, I'm going to say the recollection, and I'd like you to repeat it after me. It helps for the remembering of it. Whatever we want to use, we've got to first know it and then remember it. If we don't remember it, it will never have any personal use. 
And so the whole of the teaching, the Buddha constantly reminds his listeners, listen and remember, and then use it, and then evaluate it. See if it has done anything for you. A spiritual path is a path that goes through heart and mind. All of us are perfectly capable of it, but we do need some guidelines. The reason the Buddha wanted us to remember these five daily recollections and use them every day is to strike a balance between our attachment and the light in ourselves, our bodies, other people's bodies, and life as such where every time something happens that isn't the way we wanted it, we think it's a tragedy. It's not. There are no tragedies. There are only the ups and downs, the movement of everything that exists. Some of it we don't like, so we think it's a tragedy. Some of it we do like, and we think that we're very lucky. It's neither one nor the other. It's just movement. And in order to give us this balance, which is part of the middle path that the Buddha taught, taught he wanted us to remember the, the actuality of life and death that we are subject to. Not in order to give us a feeling of despondency or unhappiness, but strictly in order to balance out our going overboard on the side of trying to make life perfect and hoping it's going to be so and wishing for certain things that should take place so that we will make it perfect. It's an impossible and un not fruitful endeavor. It doesn't work. So therefore, we need to remember these five things. As we contemplate, as after you have repeated them after me, I will say something about them to help you with the contemplation. Of course, you will get your own ideas about it. Naturally, we use the mind for it. Enlightenment is also in the mind. But it's not thinking about it. It's realizing it within and knowing what it means. The same applies for the contemplation. So it's not thinking about, which is discursive thinking, with logical results, but it is trying to realize within that this is a truth and how do I feel about it. Naturally, the mind answers, how do I feel about it? But there is first a feeling. 
In order to get started, please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. And now please repeat after me. I am of the nature to decay. I have not got beyond decay. In order to contemplate that, first you need to ascertain whether this is true. If it is true, are you remembering it or trying to forget it or never pay attention to it? If so, why? If you're now made to remember it, how do you feel about it, decay? What does it mean to you? How do you live with it? I'm of the nature to be diseased. I have not got beyond disease. Now again, in order to contemplate that, we first find out whether this is true. Diseased means dis-ease, non-ease. It doesn't necessarily mean a life-threatening illness, but it can mean that also. Do we have this non-ease? And how do we feel about it? Do we reject it, resist it, dislike it? Or are we already aware of the fact that this is part of existence?
I'm of the nature to die. I have not got beyond death. Now, here we don't have to inquire whether this is true. We all know it is. But what we do need to inquire into is whether we are actually remembering that truth or whether we are living each day as if it could never happen to us. If is that what we're doing, can we change our attitude? Can we actually take into consideration that death is always present and thereby organize our life according to its priority and not according to what we might do in the future? Can we actually accept our own personal death within the context of all that is alive also must die? All that is mine, dear and delightful, must change and vanish. Now here we can inquire whether this is true of what we know about the past. What we found dear and delightful in the past, whether it has changed or vanished. People situations, experiences, feelings. And if it is true, how do we feel about that which we find dear and delightful now? Do we realize that that too changes and vanishes?
I am the owner of my karma. Now, here the contemplation concerns the fact that all we can actually own are the results of our thoughts, speech, and action. Technically speaking, they're called vipaka, but we do call them karma. So we're used to that. Which means that if we contemplate this truth, that we own the results of thought, speech, and action, that we take full responsibility for whatever happens to us. If we can do that, we've taken a big step on this pathway. I am heir to my karma. And this needs to be seen as in the context of having an inheritance that we ourselves provide. So if we want to have it valuable, beautiful, helpful, we need to be the one who manufactures that inheritance. We're inheriting our own resultants. I am born of my karma. It's a resultance of our own thought, speech, and action which have brought about our appearance here in a certain situation, in a certain family, in a certain place. There's nobody else to blame. There's nobody to blame.
I lived supported by my karma. We need to recognize and realize that the support system which we can really depend on is our own karma-making activity through thought, speech, and action. It will help us and provide good situations if that's what we have actually done, or vice versa. Whatever karma I shall do, whether good or evil, that I shall inherit. Now that takes us from the past to the present and is more an affirmation and an understanding of the fact that we ourselves are responsible for whatever happens in our lives. Responsibility, responsibility lies squarely on our own shoulders, whether we can see it or not. This is a determination. The whole of the Buddha's teaching is divided into three parts. In Pali, Sila Samadhi Panya, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, our insight. And as I told you yesterday, the Buddha was asking the other monks whether they knew of any particular monk with ten abilities. And I mentioned only several of those, not all of them. We got as far as the concentration aspect. <coughs> now, concentration, as one of the three parts of the teaching, has a particular meaning in the Buddha's teaching. It is the last step on the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths, and it's called Summer Samadhi, which means right concentration. 
And in the Buddha's way of explaining that, it means being properly concentrated so that the mind is no longer touched by anything that is external to it. In the commentary, there are three kinds of concentration mentioned. Momentary, neighborhood, and total or absolute concentration. Buddha never talked about momentary and neighborhood concentration because he didn't probably didn't think much of it. But we are very much aware of it. Kanika Samadhi, momentary concentration, is when we put our mind on the meditation subject for a moment and then the mind flits off again. That's momentary. Now, that momentary concentration is, of course, something that we know also from our daily living. We can concentrate. If we couldn't, we wouldn't be able to dial a proper telephone number or rather press the buttons these days. We couldn't do anything properly. We couldn't watch the lights change at the street corners and cross the street if we couldn't concentrate on it. That's momentary. Momentary concentration is not really meditation, but it can eventually lead to it. So we've got to make the best of what we've got. So if that is what's happening, momentary concentration, it also has quite a number of benefits. The benefit, first of all, comes about from the experience that a moment of concentration brings a moment of peace. It's impossible to have complete peace in the mind when the mind is thinking because it is working and not only that, it is judging. It's judging and it is expecting and it is planning and it may be also negatively resisting or positively creating. In other words, it's busy. And at that time, peacefulness cannot be experienced. That what everybody is looking for and should be looking for, a real and completely fulfilled happiness is synonymous with complete peacefulness. Complete peacefulness does not mean lying on the beach and having the sun shine on one's head. If the mind is peaceful at that time, then that could be peaceful. But if it's only the body lying there and the mind churning as usual, nothing much is happening other than a change of scenery. Now, momentary concentration in the meditation can at least give us an inkling that there is such a thing as just being aware without having to think about it. 
And at that moment, the mind can be momentarily peaceful. So we have that as a benefit. We have more. One moment of concentration is one moment of purification. And that needs to be remembered over and over again when, in our daily living, we get up in the morning and think we haven't got time for meditation. One moment of concentration is one moment of purification. Because when we're concentrated, we cannot possibly be negative. We cannot have any of our hindrances, any of our unwholesome thoughts or rejections in the mind. We are strictly concentrated. So if it's only one minute or even half a minute, that is so much more purification than we would have had otherwise. The spiritual path is a path of purification. One of the most famous and most widely used books which we have in this tradition is called The Path of Purification. It's not by the Buddha. It's about the Buddha's teaching and was written in the 5th century by a great and famous monk. And it concerns everything that the Buddha taught and it concerns particularly and actually exclusively the discourse which I am using as a basis for this teaching. However, that book, which also uses that discourse as a basis, has about 500 or more very closely printed pages and takes a long, long time to read. So you can see how much more there is to know about. But one doesn't have to know it all. One has to do it. And that's the whole crux of the matter. So the momentary concentration is also a path of purification, obviously not quite as fulfilling as a longer concentration. The other benefit which we get from just momentary concentration is also the labeling, which is the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Mindfulness is the heart of Buddhist meditation. I mention it more than just in passing. Mindfulness has four aspects, four foundations, four things we can become mindful of. And the first one is the body. Now we're using the body by watching the breath. We're using the body by watching the movement of the feet in walking meditation. Now let's use the body even more than that. The Buddha said, who is not mindful of the body cannot come near the deathless. The deathless is another word for Nibbana. Using the body more for mindfulness means to be aware of our movements also outside of the meditation practice. We have many hours 
when we're not meditating in here. During those times, we may be walking from here to the dining room, or walking from the dining room to our own room, or sitting down, or getting up, or eating, or going to the toilet, to the bathroom, washing, dressing, undressing, opening the door, closing it again. There are innumerable physical actions which we perform during a day. If we use mindfulness, bare attention, no judgment, just watching, on those actions, we are supporting our meditation practice. It gives us a support system where the mind is not allowed to run free and roam as it usually does but we keep it in check and we keep it inward. We're staying within. The mindfulness of the body is not designed in order to know what we're doing. We know that anyway. The mindfulness of the body is designed to keep the mind attentive and aware. With that attention and awareness of the body, we have a greater chance to continue that when we watch the breath or the movement of the feet. So as you're moving about during the day here, try to remember. Make yourself a little piece of paper and write on it in big letters. Remember. It's a matter of remembering. We all have very short memories particularly for that which is good for us. Our memories are long when we have been slighted or hurt, but they're short when we should know what's good for us. This is one aspect which will be helpful in daily living under any circumstance, because we perform many actions with the body and if we do not get sidetracked, but keep attentive to what we're actually doing, not only are we far more efficient, we're far less stressed. The stress we have is in the mind. And the mind gets so stressed because it is attending to many things. And it's attending to many things in very quick succession, sometimes giving us the impression as if it is attending to many things all at the same time, which it can't do. But it can do it so quickly that it gets very stressed. The Buddha said we can have 3,000 mind moments in the blink of an eyelid. No wonder we get stressed if we actually do that. So we need to separate where we want to put our attention. If we use the time here, for becoming mindful of physical action, we are separating that where we want to put our attention and that which is impinging upon it, which is drawing us away from it. Our own ideas, views and opinions, dreams, hopes, and regrets. They do not need to impinge, just bear attention. So we're using that as the first foundation of mindfulness. 
in meditation and outside of meditation. The fourth foundation, the content of mind, that which is existing as a thought. Now when we labor, we become aware of content. That's why it's so important to labor, because that too is part of our daily living, content of mind. How can we ever change content of mind if we don't know it in the first place? And if our understanding goes a little deeper, we will quickly recognize that whatever is happening to us in our lives is content of our own mind. There is nothing else. Whatever happens outside of us is what is called the trigger. And content of our own mind is our life. So if we don't like content of mind, we'll change it. Here we have a chance to learn how to change it. The labeling itself is then our second benefit, or third benefit, I should say. The first one is the recognition of a little peacefulness. The second one is the purification aspect. And the third one is the recognition of content of mind through the labeling. So even if there's only momentary concentration, just a single moment, we do have those benefits built in right from the start. Neighborhood concentration. This is an important aspect for those of you who have practiced longer already. They're all different lengths of practice here. That's fine. Neighborhood concentration is exactly what it says, upachara samadhi. It's going into the neighborhood of concentration. It's not concentration yet, but at least it's already in the right neighborhood. We're living on the right side of the track. So what's happening when we have neighborhood concentration? We don't label anymore because it would disturb our concentration. This neighborhood concentration feels like this. We're on the breath, but we know very well that there's something else that's happening. We're not totally on the breath. And very often it feels as if thoughts are going past the back of the head like clouds passing by. And impossible to catch, therefore impossible to label, but apparently also impossible to get rid of. If this is happening, it needs a little more determination. It needs a little pep talk to oneself. Let me fall into the breath a little more deliberately. Let me pay better attention. Be totally absorbed in the breath. This is one step away from real concentration. And I would like to repeat this. If this is happening, do not labor. Just make determination to be completely in the breath. 
and every time, because it is actually, it feels as if it is a cloud or um, um, something like a bit of a fog in the back where the thoughts go by, where on the other end the mind is aware of the breath too. So it's not a totally clear state of mind. And that extra determination, that extra push we can give ourselves to be really clearly aware of the breath brings then the absorption, the absorbed meditation. That's called right concentration. Now, right concentration has many, many benefits. And we will talk about it in great detail as we go along. Because it is what everybody wants. Although sometimes we don't even know that's what we want. Why do we want right concentration? Certainly not in order to be right, and that's not what it means either. What we want it for is to have finally a respite, a peace, a change from the churning mind that can never come to the perfect conclusion, that can never come to the ending of all dukkha, that can never figure it all out, because there's always something else that wants figuring. We want peace from that. And whether we know that or not, there isn't a single mind that doesn't want that. There's an inner yearning for that. Luckily, because that's why people come to meditation courses. Otherwise, probably nobody would ever appear. That inner yearning is natural. And it is the one thing that leads us to a spiritual life. Because it tells us quite clearly that the ordinary, everyday level of thinking the ordinary, everyday level of reacting and of having our communication with what we call our life is not totally satisfactory. Surely it has its moments. We need not denigrate that. There are moments which are very nice, but of course they don't remain. And yet, even those moments, within those moments we already know, whether we admit it or not, that they will not last, that they are impermanent. There isn't a single moment in all of existence, never mind whether it's our life or the whole of life or the universe, there isn't a single moment which can last. And we know that underneath, in a grasp of our own inner being, whether we say so, admit it, or have ever thought about it, makes no difference. And that's why our total satisfaction, even in the nicest moments, is lacking. This inner yearning for peacefulness has one answer, one answer only, Again, very simple, but not so easy. 
And that's absorption. Concentration to the point of absorption. And that's then called right concentration. The point of absorption means that the mind is no longer going outward. It has lost interest, momentarily, mind you. It will pick the interest up again afterwards. But it has lost interest momentarily in outer conditions. It is only interested in the inner condition. Now, if that should happen, the first indication, and I want to mention these things now at the beginning of the course because some of you have practiced for quite a long time according to your um, listing on the paper, and it may very well be that these things are happening in your meditation. The first indication is that the breath becomes much, much finer. It's not as heavy as it was. And then it may appear as if the breath has disappeared. Now, if that happens for the first time, the mind immediately reacts and practically everyone and says, goodness, I've lost my breath. Let me quickly breathe a little harder, which is, of course, totally counterproductive, but totally normal. One has to get used to it two or three times to realize that the breath only stops when we are dying. If we're meditating, it doesn't stop, but it becomes very fine. There are always the pores that we breathe through, even if we can't feel it, at the nostrils anymore or we may not feel it if you're using the rise and fall we may not feel it there either but the breathing doesn't stop what has stopped is a churning of the mind and the churning of the mind brings about as long as the mind is agitated and busy the breath is as we know it normally but when the mind becomes quieter and quieter, the breath becomes quieter and quieter. The two are intrinsically connected. And this is why the breath is used as a traditional meditation subject. There are many others. But this one is traditionally used because it has that intrinsic connection to the mind. So as the breath becomes fine, there's no need for alarm. Guaranteed. What there is need for at that moment is to recognize that now concentration has come about and if the breath is no longer viable as a meditation subject, we turn inside to our feelings. The feeling at that time is a sensation, a very pleasant sensation. And if you're questioning whether you've got it, you haven't got it. Because it is so pleasant, you couldn't possibly mistake it. It's totally different from anything else that one has ever experienced. In Pali, it's called piti, P-I-T-I. 
In English we translate it as rapture or bliss. Those are very big words and denote something immense. It need not be immense. It need just be a very pleasant feeling. If this is happening, this is where you put your attention. Put your full attention on that feeling, on that sensation, and stay with it as long as it will last. I will, in the course of this, of these talks, explain what to do as we go further from that. But this is the first step. These are three possibilities of concentration. The momentary one, which has immediate benefits. The neighborhood one, which goes towards concentration and needs no labeling anymore, just determination. And the one which is concentrated enough so that we can let go of the breath. Now with the third one. I like to explain to you that the attention on the breath you can compare to having a key. Holding on to this key, which is the breath, long enough and steady enough to fit it into the keyhole. And as you fit it into the keyhole, you're obviously going to unlock the door. And as you unlock the door, you enter a mansion which has eight chambers. That pleasant sensation is the first one, the first room, or the first chamber. Having gone inside this mansion, obviously the other rooms are at your disposal. So when you have held the key in your hand or your breath in your mind long enough to be able to unlock the door, you've unlocked it often enough, you never need a key again. It stays open. You never need the method again. In the beginning, one needs the method over and over again but it becomes easier and easier to fit the key into the keyhole because we finally know where it is. For this, there are certain indications which are very important for every meditator. The first one is that if you've had what you consider a good meditation, whatever you think is a good meditation, even if it was just slightly better than what happened in the morning. doesn't matter. Before you open your eyes, do two things. First, look at the impermanence of whatever it was that happened. No matter how pleasant or how unpleasant it may have been, it's impermanent, it's gone. Look at it. This impermanence which nobody denies, or I should say almost nobody denies, needs to become an inner reality. As long as it's an understanding, it's very nice, it's okay, it's fine, nothing wrong with it, but it is not the spiritual life. It has to become an inner reality, the impermanence, 
because eventually we will see ourselves like a leaf in the wind, transparent to boot, no solidity at all. And then all the unpleasantness that arises in everybody's life can no longer touch us because there's nothing there to be touched. Impermanence has to become a basic reality within a person's understanding who's meditating and wants a spiritual path. The recognition of it is, first of all, an intellectual recognition. It has to become a feeling. I'd like you to become very much aware of the difference between an intellectual understanding and an inner reality. The inner reality is based on feeling. It has to be. It cannot be based on thinking. The feeling then creates an understanding. I call that the understood experience. So what I'd like you to do after each meditation which you consider is worthwhile contemplating is to first see the impermanence of whatever happened, it's gone. And secondly, if it has been an experience which is worthwhile repeating, to find the pathway. That means that you reconsider, recollect every step you've done on the way. Did I sit differently? Did I eat differently? Did I eat more or less? Did I sleep more or less? Did I think differently when I sat down? Did I have a different way of watching the breath? Whatever it is that you can remember about it, the most minute detail may be helpful. Something which comes to mind as having been different this time. It's very often a physical thing, such as sitting differently, but always connected to the reaction of the mind to that. So find a pathway. From anything that's worked nicely, remember what it was. This is particularly true for the third kind of concentration, the absorbed concentration. After having been absorbed and having experienced this pleasant feeling, first notice its impermanence. This is of vital importance for any spiritual development. Because of the fact that we're very happy when our unpleasant feelings disappear, In fact, we can hardly wait for them to disappear. But the pleasant ones we'd like to keep. Notice this one being very pleasant also disappearing. Only that will finally bring to bear upon us the reality of anicca, impermanence. The reality of this totally moving and never standing still universe 
which is constantly contracting and expanding, each person in it doing exactly the same, no solidity, no core substance, nothing solid to be found anywhere. The pleasant feeling when it disappears brings that to a much greater importance than when the unpleasant feelings disappear. If the mind says, oh, what a pity, that was very nice, then notice, clinging, I'd like to keep it. When the mind says, how am I quickly going to get this back now, then notice, desire. It's all perfectly normal. But what is normal and natural is unfortunately not what brings us happiness. That's why it's uh, fairly difficult to actually be on a spiritual path and remain on it. So notice the impermanence, and as then, if you've seen that, then again, recollect, what did I do differently this time? so that you can do it again, so that eventually the key fits into the keyhole without any problem, and eventually the door remains open. When one becomes practiced at this, one can go into at least this first room of the mansion at any time under any circumstances. The others may be a little more difficult, but this first one has no problem to it at all if one practices diligently. What a word, huh? Diligence. The great benefit of complete absorption is the fact that when we're able to do that, we have an insight which is invaluable. We recognize and realize that we are no longer dependent upon outer conditions for our happiness. We are only dependent upon an inner condition. Now, what could be more significant than that? It's very easily said. It's not so difficult to do. But when it once has dawned on us that this is where it's at, within, not out there, our whole life changes. Our whole perspective changes. That doesn't mean we can no longer go to the beach. doesn't mean we can't enjoy a sunset or a nice symphony. It doesn't mean any of that. But we are no longer dependent upon it for our happiness. We no longer depend upon other people for our happiness. It doesn't mean we can't have relationship, communication, and connections. We're not dependent upon them. We are strictly dependent upon an inner condition. It's not total unconditioned. The total unconditioned is nibbana. But it's certainly an inner independence. And it is strictly being dependent upon oneself. 
Now that's part of freedom. As long as we depend upon others for our happiness, for our safety, for our security, we are actually victims of other people because they may not continue the way they did before. They may change their mind. Everybody changes their mind. We ourselves change our minds. Having the ability to come to a state within which creates peacefulness, blissfulness, makes it possible for us to look at the world with all its temptations and either take it or leave it. It doesn't matter anymore. Because what we can experience within is far better. What we're actually experiencing within is our own inner purity, and we've all got it. But it's constantly overlaid with thinking. The nicest thinking is still not pure because it is based upon our own viewpoints and opinions which are ego-connected. Unless we become totally enlightened, our ego colors or discolors everything. And because of that, there is never any absolute purity to be found in thinking. It can be very intelligent, can be very profound, it can be very innovative, inventive, it can have all those attributes, but it doesn't have complete purity. When we stop thinking, we can touch upon that inner purity which all of us possess and which is strictly based on a feeling. And this is what this sensation then brings about, an inner feeling. And we have found within at that time, possibly for the first time, a base, a base on which we can rest secure. Not that we don't continue to practice, this is only the beginning, but we can rest secure that we have found a base from which to continue. Until then, most people find meditation a chore uncomfortable to sit, it's boring to watch the breath, it's tedious to do it, and maybe it doesn't bring anything, so we do it for a while, and then we forget again about it, and then we start again. That, of course, cannot bring the results which we would like to have. The real incentive starts when this first step is taken into 
the absorbed meditation. And that's why the word piti is also translated as interest, not only as rapture and bliss, but also as interest, rapture and bliss being feelings, interest in the mind. It has a mind result, namely interest now becomes so strong and so one-pointed that it would be difficult to get away from meditation and the spiritual um, pathway. The meditative absorption, which is the third kind of the concentration, is not our goal, it's our means. But it is the right kind of means, and it needs to be used. It's a means which will take us to the goal. The Buddha himself practiced the meditative absorptions. The Buddha taught them. It is difficult to find a discourse of the Buddha in which he explains meditation in which the absorptions are not mentioned. Sometimes they are only mentioned in passing, sometimes only mentioned very briefly, sometimes more in detail. They are never mentioned in complete detail. One would assume from that that people in his day knew how to do it. There's no reason why we can't do it. Those people then and we today are exactly the same, human beings with heart and mind, no difference. Possibly we have more distractions. The world as it is known, particularly here in California, is extremely distracting. But that doesn't mean that we can't get away from it. We already have got away from it. We're here. And that is, shows that we can do it. The concentration, therefore, is the means. And whatever kind of concentration, one of those three we have, each one is beneficial. But as you can see, the third one will be most beneficial because it also has a much stronger purification system built in. And I will speak about that strong purification system at another time in more detail. But obviously, if we can stay concentrated longer, we will have longer purification. And with the kind of result that comes about in this first aspect, absorption, we will be very keen to stay concentrated because it gives us an elevated feeling. It gives us a feeling of being not not so connected to our daily thought processes. It gives us a feeling of having a different dimension. And this is exactly what meditation is all about. It must give us a different dimension. 
If it didn't do that, it wouldn't be worthwhile pursuing. The different mind dimension. And in this different mind dimension, there's actually no limit. It's unlimited. And this no limit is what every mind can do. All starts with watching the breath. Beside concentration, the Buddha also asked of this monk that he's looking for wisdom and able to teach it. In principle, one can't teach wisdom. Wisdom is something that arises within each person individually. We can, and Buddha could, show the way to wisdom. Wisdom has three parts. The first aspect is knowledge, getting to know. Now, this is a part that can be given from one person to another. Mm -hmm. Knowledge, that's available. When it remains knowledge, it certainly isn't wisdom. That knowledge then has to be digested. Just like we digest our food in the body, and excrete that which we don't need, and the rest brings energy and life force to this body, the same goes with knowledge. If we don't digest it, excrete what we don't need, but let the rest go into our bloodstream, into our mind stream, so that it can actually give the mind a new leasehold on life then we haven't used the knowledge. So what we need to do is first get the knowledge and then remember it. I've said that once already or twice. I'll probably say it another ten times. It has to be remembered. Without remembering, it's totally useless. We cannot get at it. We cannot make use of it. It's like reading a menu, but not ordering the meal. So after we've remembered it, then we have to practice that knowledge. And only then do we find out how difficult it is. Because all our instincts and impulses go against it, against the spiritual knowledge. Why is that? Because of our ego illusion. Ego is me, and me wants it pleasant, comfortable, supportive, and under all circumstances, secure and safe for me. None of that exists. That's all illusion. That's why we try very hard and don't get anywhere with it. If we would let that all go and try the opposite, 
we'd have very good results. It works perfectly, as the Buddha told us. But it goes against our grain, and this particular English idiom is excellent. It goes against the grain. Our grain is going in a different way. It wants the me to be all right. So what it actually means when we have this knowledge of the spiritual, of the spiritual path and actually have remembered it, that we come to terms with the fact that it's difficult and accept that and do it anyway. And this is where the biggest rub is. It's difficult, but we do it anyway. Obviously, we're not going to be successful right away. And that, too, we accept. It's all right. So we lost that one. Well, we'll try the next one. It doesn't matter. It all is as it is. One of the worst features in this particular aspect is self-blame. Blaming self is just as bad as blaming others. What is there to blame? It's difficult. So I didn't make it this time. So I'll try again another time. Self-blame is synonymous with self-hate, and which is counterproductive to anything one tries to achieve on the spiritual path. There's nobody and nothing to blame. The human being is born with six roots, and they're called the three roots of good and the three roots of evil. We have all six. The three roots of evil are hate, greed, and delusion. Lopa, dosa, moha. Sorry, the other way around. Dosa, lopa, moha. Now, hate, greed, and delusion are based on our delusion, is based on our ego delusion, on the solidity of the me, and hate and greed arise from that. But we have the three opposites. We have love, generosity, and wisdom. We've got all six. So what's there to blame? They're all there. Sometimes we're able to arouse the three good ones. And other times, the three evil ones are showing all their fangs. That's the way it is. The only thing that a person who is a meditator and on a spiritual path can do is to recognize, because of mindfulness of mind states, to recognize which one of the six has shown its face, and if it's one of the three evil ones, to try to substitute. That's all. That's practice. So if we have knowledge and have remembered it, then comes the practice. And the practice, of course, takes the most time and the most effort. And practice does not mean sitting with legs crossed on a pillow. Too often are people using the word practice and meaning to sit here and close their eyes and watch their breath. That's one part of practice and only one. It's the one that gives us the biggest support system. But practice 
is from morning to night, all the time. And it doesn't matter how we keep our legs. Whether we're walking, standing, sitting, or lying down, practice this all the time. Namely, remembering that we watch our mind states and that we know we have three roots of good and three roots of evil and that if we want to advance on the spiritual path, the three roots of good are our helpers and the three roots of evil are our enemies and that we will try and get those roots of good, give them more place, more room in our mind. Practice means watching oneself. Watching oneself carefully. This is what we're learning. This is what we're practicing here to watch ourselves with the physical, the body, and with the mind states when we're labeling. Equally so, we're watching feeling which is the second base of mindfulness, Vedana Nupasana. For instance, when there is unpleasant feeling in the leg or in the back or wherever it may be, we recognize this as a source of learning and not as a source of discomfort. When we have that as a source of learning, we're using the second base of mindfulness, understanding how the feeling arose and how our natural reactions work. When we recognize how the natural reactions are not conducive to our own well-being, but will constantly bring us to the point of being a reactor rather than an actor, we will eventually let go of that and drop it. So we're using, even in just sitting, at least three bases of mindfulness. The wisdom or insight, which the Buddha mentions here, is the goal the goal of our spiritual practice, the concentration, the means. When we gain knowledge and remember and then practice, the fourth step is evaluation. Now this is something that people who have practiced for some time would find very helpful to evaluate their own status as they see it themselves, not somebody else. Other people's opinions are their opinions. An arahant is free, arahant is enlightened one, is free of views and opinions. An enlightened one only goes by his or her own experience. We evaluate ourselves by our own viewpoint, not by others. And as we evaluate ourselves, we can see that over some years of practice, our reactions may have changed, and we can see we've gone the right way. If we see that over some years of practice, our reactions have not changed, 
that we're still reacting exactly the same way as we did, then we must make a new assessment. Wisdom comes from knowledge, remembering, practicing, and evaluating. That's how our own wisdom arises. Now, there are many guidelines that we can use, but essentially and eventually, it all remains with us ourselves. This is actually the beauty of the teaching of the Buddha, that it's a complete do-it-yourself kit. And if we use it, we couldn't possibly go wrong because there are exact description of how to put it together at every step on the way. I'll stop now and give you a chance to ask some questions if you like and continue in the evening. Yes. Absolutely and utterly. <laughs> it is a. Um, I have just recently, maybe just to elaborate on this for one second, um, written about that uh, or mentioned it to um, my friend who's the uh, secretary and assistant to Venomanana Ponica. And the answer that came back is there is no dry inside. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, Burma works on dry inside. I know. But that is only a comment, you know. Um, I can say to that, though, that in the uh, scriptures, it is mentioned that at the time of the Buddha, there were, now, I'm not sure whether I've got the number right, but I think it was 398 dry inside arahants. Uh, I'm not 100% positive. I know it's 300-something. And... Uh, the, when I questioned that um, in the beginning, the answer was to that, that uh, obviously they did their, um, uh, their concentration and absorption in past life. Yes. <laughs> so there, there is this, um, there is this um, difference of opinion. Um, but, you know, quite apart from the difference of opinion, the great advantage that we find in the absorption meditation is the fact that we have a state of mind available to us which does not um, get bogged down in the uh, daily uh, difficulties. It has daily difficulties. Every mind has. But it doesn't get bogged down in it because it knows very well that it can retreat from it again. And that is probably one of its greatest advantages. And also, there's another very great advantage, which I should mention at this time. 
And that is the fact that when you go to the higher jhanas, which are the arupas, the non-material jhanas, they are automatic inside jhanas. They give automatic insight. One doesn't have to even try. <laughs> so the advantages are uh, immense. Anything else? Now, come on. In my experience in America, questions are always everywhere. <laughs> this looks like Sri Lanka, and nobody asks a question. <laughs> Nothing? Everything totally unclear or everything totally clear? <laughs> questions will happen as you go along. <laughs> 